I don't know how many of you realize this. Hopefully you do. We're in a sermon series. What a sermon series means is that each sermon sort of builds on each. But you don't have to be at all these sermons to understand what's going on. So there's kind of like a series that you might watch on uh, TV. Uh, like a sitcom, maybe. Uh, you know what a sitcom is, where it's just a 30-minute show that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and those characters stay the same each year, and they keep going forward, but each show is sort of in and of itself a show. It's sort of like that. Well, today we're at Abraham, or Abram, as we call him here. And what we do remember is that what we're talking about is God's story right? The Bible is God's story, how he relates to us. And we're looking at his redemptive pursuit through all of scripture. And how that can best be summed up is by God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. So Abram, he's a big figure. As a matter of fact, next to Moses, only next to Moses, is he the Old Testament character or person who is mentioned in the New Testament most. So it's Moses and then it's Abraham. We know about Abraham. We learn about Abraham. If you've ever stepped foot in a church, you maybe have heard the song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And then we add actions. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot, head up, head down, turn around, sit down. As a child, I loved that. I had no clue what it meant, but I loved the fact that I got to move around in church. It was great. And so sometimes we think of Abram as this mighty man of faith, which he is. But I think there's more to understanding how God is working in Abram's life that we can find today. As a matter of fact, there's much more that we can find out about who God is. So history, historical context. After Noah is saved and brought out of the ark, which we talked about last week, we know that preservation is taking place. And the world begins to expand again with people. And they actually get more corrupt because we know sin is a problem. It is in the world. Now remember, sin is the aberration. It's not the thing that's normal. God, when he created the world, it was good. But sin breaks in. And it corrupts. And so these people are becoming more and more corrupt till we get to the Tower of Babel. So the Tower of Babel, these men or women are gathering together, they're building a city, and they say, let's build a tower because we're like God. We want to be our own God. And what does God do? He disperses them. He gives them different languages so that they cannot understand one another, and all of a sudden they're broken free, and they're out. And we get to the story of Abram where God has now taken this promise that men had made themselves in Babel, that they were going to be great and mighty. And he focuses in on Abram. And he sees him. And he says, you are the one. Now what we're going to look at today in this particular person, at this particular place, is that God is persistent in his pursuit, that God is persistent in his provision, and that God is persistent in his promise. So God is persistent in his pursuit, in his provision, and in his promise. In this particular person of Abram and this particular place of Canaan, but on throughout the rest. It is just a foreshadowing for us. So let's talk about pursuit. Now what takes place in Abram's life here is he was raised in a pagan household. 
His father worshipped many gods. As a matter of fact, most of the people around them either worshipped themselves or were polytheistic, meaning they had many gods that they worshipped. Probably the son is the god that was worshipped most in his house. And somehow, in some way, by the grace of God, he becomes monotheistic, believing that there's only one God to worship. How does that happen? God pursues him. It says that the Lord said to Abram that he stepped in and confronted Abram in his life. Genesis 1, Genesis 12, 1. The Lord said to Abram. It wasn't necessarily that Abram was seeking out the Lord, this God that he didn't really probably quite have a, a, a category for. It's that God, in his persistent pursuit, comes to Abram. And he says to him, I want you to go out from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then in chapter 15, what do we see him do? We say, in this land, this land you will possess. It will be your land. It will be the land of your people. And look at the stars. That is the number of your people. That's how great you will be. And so oftentimes when we hear about God's pursuit in this way, that somehow it goes from having this Tower of Babel where all these people are trying to be gods themselves and he scatters them and he chooses just one. It can be very difficult for our modern ears to hear. Because doesn't that sound unfair? Why is it that God looked down among all the people in the world and said, I will bless Abram? I will choose him. He is the one that I will use to continue in my relentless pursuit to have a people that are my own, that I can be their God. It flies against our egalitarianism, this idea that everybody deserves a fair go, right? But grace actually fights against that. Grace actually says God has to be particular in order to bless everyone. Because if in his pursuit he didn't find just one in order to move them forward in bringing glory and honor to himself, then none would do it. Because in and of ourselves, our desire is to build the tower. You see, the interesting thing about it is is God's particular choosing is much more universal in its approach than our attempts at universal acceptance. Think about it. What does God say about his pursuit here? I've chosen you so that you can bless all the nations. What happens when we decide that we're going to be open to everyone? Don't we very quickly in our minds begin to eliminate people who don't quite fit in to that everyone? I mean, we start very righteously. We say, well, obviously, people that murder and people that maim and people that kill. and I, I mean, tyrants and dictators, you know, they, they really probably don't belong. So we limit it. And, and then we begin to think, well, those people that don't actually kind of get everything that I get, those people that don't understand 
And then, and then maybe you get like, and my brother-in-law, I really don't like him that much, and I really hate to... And slowly but surely, our desire for universalism, this idea that we have to accept everyone, begins to narrow. Because in our hearts and in our minds, we really just want people to be like us. That's what we're most comfortable with. That's what we get alongside on better. And it makes life so much easier, doesn't it? But eventually, it just is us. Because nobody will meet our expectations. Nobody will stay exactly the way we want them to stay. We will be hurt. As a matter of fact, if we're really honest, we don't even make the grade. But God, in his particular, his pursuit of this particular man, says, I'm going to take you to bless the nations. Now, before you say, well, but that's not me, Lee. I mean, really. I mean, obviously, that I would not, you know, narrow it down to just me. It's at that moment that you and I run back to the fall and the pride of life. Because we begin to think to ourselves how smart we are or how right we are or how good we have been to be able to have figured out this God thing. And isn't he lucky to have me? Oh, we would never say it that way. C.S. Lewis said this, the Christian has a great advantage not by being less fallen, nor being less doomed to live in a fallen world, but by knowing they are a fallen man living in a fallen world. You see, God's relentless pursuit comes in to Abraham because he knows that he must bless the nations through a person. And he chooses Abram, and he calls him forth to do it. So he is relentless in his pursuit. But he also continues to move and is persistent in his provision. Now, listen quickly to what God says to Abram. He says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Now jump down to verse 4. It says, and so Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot, his nephew, went with him. We're talking one verse. And Abram says, I hear what you're saying, Lord, but I think I need to take Lot with me. <laughs> I hear what you're saying, Lord, but I, but I think maybe if I just adjust it a, a little bit, it will work out okay. But what does God do? Does God say, well, I guess it's not Abram. I guess he's not the one that I should have chosen. He's not the particular person I should have pursued. That's not what he does. God stays with him, present, pursuing him. He understands what Abram's going through. And then there's a famine in this land. We read, before we get to chapter 15, in Canaan, this promised land. And 
Abram leaves, and he goes to Egypt. And as he's going to Egypt, he looks at his wife, who's a hottie, good-looking, pretty, and he says, hey, when somebody asks, tell them that you're my sister and that I'm your brother. And they go, and Pharaoh's people see Sarah and goes, she's pretty. I bet the Pharaoh would like her. It takes Sarah, brings her to the Pharaoh, and indeed, he looks at her and finds her pleasing. And God, in his protective move, in his provision, strikes an illness, a curse on all of Pharaoh and his household to maintain Sarah, to protect her and provide for himself a pure line. And Pharaoh goes, what is going on? Why is this happening? And it's, he figures it out. Oh, Sarah's really Abram's wife. Why did you do this to me? Take these cattle, take these donkeys, take everything and get out. God provides. He has provision. What does Abram say to God in the very beginning of chapter 15? Abram says to God, how will I know you're going to do this? How will I know I will possess this land? Does that sound like this great pillar of faith? But God provides for him. He puts him to sleep and he shows him just how serious he is about the covenant that he's making with him. You see, what took place there in the splitting of the animals and separating them out is that both parties are actually supposed to walk through that. It's to say that if I break my covenant with you, there should be blood. And if you break your covenant with me, there should be blood. That's why they did that, to show a semblance of, of, of what the punishment is for this broken covenant. But who walked through it? Only God. Abram was asleep. Abram is seeing it. And God walks through and says, it is my covenant. It is my provision to do these things. That I will take the full weight of it all. And guess what happens a couple of verses, chapters later? Abimelech shows up, a king that's really smaller than Pharaoh. And what does Abram do? He says, Sarah, if he says that you're pretty, tell him that you're my sister. What? Constantly doubting Abram. Questioning, wondering. But you need to hear this and know that God, in his provision that we see taking place here, understands human doubt. Look, he knows that we see through the glass dimly. He understands that in this world that is fallen, we have hard time trusting and seeing that God is actually working, that he's moving, that he'll keep his promises. Flannery O'Connor said this, don't expect faith to clear things up for you. It is trust, not certainty. You see, God in his provision doesn't say, I'm going to answer all the questions of the world. I'm going to give you every system that you need to know to be successful. I'm going to make sure that you're well aware of all the plans that I have. As a matter of fact, at the very beginning, he said to Abram, get up and go to the place I'll show you. 
Not get up and go to Canaan, not get up and go here and then here and then here, and I want you to do this, this, and this. He said, get up and go to the place I'll show you. Emily Dickinson says, we both believe and disbelieve a hundred times an hour, which keeps believing nimble. You see, when we decide that we have certainty, that we've got it all figured out, that's when we're dead. Because that's the only time that we'll see God face to face. Now, while being in His glory is something that we should all long for and want to get to, I would dare say that most of us would rather be uncertain a little bit right now. That it's not for us to figure out what God is doing. It's for us to trust that He will provide, that He has provision. And oh, how hard that is for us to do. But isn't that the great thing about the covenant? Isn't that the amazing thing about what God does when He says, I want to restore right relationship between me and between you and yourself and between us and between place? It's because He doesn't leave us alone in our doubt. He doesn't leave us alone in a place where we don't understand completely what's going on. He gathers us together with people who are His so that in that relationship we can have hope and move forward. So He's persistent in His pursuit. He's persistent in His provision. And He's persistent in His promise. See, what Abraham is promised here is a seed, a child, a land, and a blessing. Now remember, when God spoke the world into existence through creation, He established the order. What the right relationship is for man, humankind, to have with Him, with themselves, with each other, and with place. And then the fall comes. But what does God do in Adam? He provides hope. He says, no, I'm not letting go of those right relationships. As a matter of fact, within Adam's promise is the truth of Jesus Christ who makes those possible. And then in Noah, we recognize that he is preserving humanity. The goodness of creation and who all of us are. And in Abram, we have a promise. You see, God is weaving, He is working, He is dreaming, He is bringing about the thing that He said from the very beginning. There is a right relationship with Me. I will be your God and you will be My people in the place that I have made for you. And so that seed is Isaac, which we'll talk about next week. And interestingly enough, he's a lot like his dad. He's a little bit of a doubter. And we'll talk about the patriarchs and how God still perseveres and works in that. But Isaac is just a symbol for us. He is just a a, a foreshadow of who the real seed is, who the true blessing is, which is Jesus Christ. But he also gives them a land, and in this case, it's a very specific land. It's the land of Canaan. Now, Canaan is really sort of a backwater town. (laughs) It's not that great of a place, but... It was strategically placed among all the major thoroughfares between Asia Minor and between Egypt and the African 
coast. And people would have to travel through there, back and forth, and trading routes all the time, going through that little strip of land. So what was God doing there? Well, one way to look at it is to believe that what God is doing in this particular person, in this particular place, is he is providing a place for his promise to flourish. That as a matter of fact, the nation of Israel will rise up, and it is supposed to be the example of what those right relationships are supposed to be with God, with themselves, with others, and with place. That they are going to be centripetal, which means they'll draw people in. They will bring them in so that they can recognize what a holy, set-apart people of God is. So it's that idea that they're moving to the center. Now, in some ways, a church should always be centripetal. It should be a place where people are moving in and out of, a place where they were discovering who God is. And so hopefully, as we begin to grow, as we begin to solidify who we are together in Christ, we will become a place that is generous and hospitable. A place where anyone can walk in and belong before they believe what we're talking about. So that they can be loved into a place where in that belonging they might believe. And in believing they will become the church of God. But we also need to provide opportunities in this place for people who maybe never would step into a church building to rub shoulders, to press skin with those of us who know who Jesus is. So maybe that looks like through some of the support groups that we have. Maybe that looks like a drama group for nine, year nines to year twelves that meet. Maybe that's art being shown. Maybe that's concerts being held. But what we do have to do is think through the place that God has put us in Fremantle. And what are those things within Fremantle that people will go, maybe I'll try that out. It's weird that it's in a church. But I wonder what's going on there. Because it gives people the ability to step through a place where the people of God are living in those right relationships by God's grace. But it doesn't really stop there. And so I don't want us to get the idea that we just open the doors and people come in and everything will be great. Because we know that before Jesus ascended, he said, go! <laughs> right? Go! And so the church, the body of Christ, should also be centrifugal. It should be sending people out. It should be moving into our neighborhoods. It should be outward facing where we are looking. Because that's how God keeps his promise. Now, Abram before he became Abraham, wandered a lot. The people of God wandered a lot, we'll see. Could it be that God was moving them out in order to draw other people unto himself? It very well could be. And so we know that God, as we see in this covenant to Abram, is persistent in his pursuit He's persistent in his provision, and he's persistent in his promise. Through this particular person in place will come the one who can restore all of our right relationships with God, ourselves, and others in place. He will draw us in 
and He will move us out. And that one is Jesus Christ. Look, C.S. Lewis wrote this once. And I think it's very profound as we think about how we interact with God. He said, it is always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry. It's alive. And therefore, this is the very point at which so many draw back. I would have done so myself if I could and proceeded no further with Christianity. An impersonal God, that's well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads. Well, that's better still. A formless life force that's surging through us. A vast power which, which we can tap. Well, that's the best of all. But, God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, the king, the husband. Now that is quite another matter. There comes a moment when a children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hallway? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion, man's search for God, suddenly draw back. Suppose we really found him. We never meant to come to that. We're still. Suppose he has found us. All the beauty of the call of Abram is that he He stepped in to a particular person for a particular place at a particular time in order that for all times, in all places, his name should be glorified. Our prayer is that if you have not encountered this living God, that when you do, you will come undone so that you can realize, just as Abram, I'm full of doubt. But somehow, he persists to pursue me. And for those of you who have been walking this journey so long, some of us for about 40 years, (laughs) some of us longer, hear who's doing the work. Hear today who's accomplishing the purpose. Be wary in your heart when you think you've got it all figured out. It is God who is pursuing. It is God who provides. It is God who keeps his promise. And when we begin to feel how great we must be to have figured it out, we should run and fall on our knees and be humbled by the fact that God has given us the gift that he sovereignly gets to choose to give. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your care for us. We thank you for your calling on us. We thank you 
that you are relentless and persistent in your pursuit and provision and promise for us. Lord, be with us. Let us hear your words today. I pray that if any words that were spoken are not your words, that they will burn up, that they will be thrown away, that they will be unremembered. But Lord, if there are words that are yours, I pray that they will take root in our heart, that they will dig deep into the soil of who we are, and that they will bear fruit that will bring you glory and honor and praise. It's in Jesus' name that makes this possible, we pray. Amen. Would you please stand and respond?